Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I am someone who is passionate about land flipping. And our guest today isn't with us to talk about flipping land, but instead talking about farmland. And I have to be honest, it's it's a asset class that I am personally very interested as well as self-storage into owning myself because it takes probably the least amount of work and is about the most passive thing. You want to talk about passive investments, you know, this is like passive stuff uh, once you actually get it. Hard part's always finding the deal. So I'm looking forward to talking about farmland and uh, this company Farm Together that our next guest is the chief of client services, the head of business development and a founding team member. Please help me welcome David Chan. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dave. Happy to be here. Well, it was, it was great talking to you a little bit at pre-chat. You were just in, in uh, Puerto Rico, seeing some sites out there. Uh, where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from uh, New York's Hudson Valley, so a uh, rural county called Ulster County, smack dab in between Albany and New York City. Love it. I noticed on your bio, you went to Cornell. Fun fact, my oldest daughter is a senior in high school, has been accepted to Cornell, and we're trying to figure out what, if any, financial aid she's going to get because that college ain't cheap. You know, it's like $80,000 a year for Cornell. Uh, I, well, first, congratulations to your daughter. That's, Thank um, you. Huge accomplishment. That's super impressive. Um, I certainly, I know now what it takes to, to get into many of these schools. I, I don't know if I would have been able to go to Cornell today. Um, so uh, the, the bar just keeps going up, but I had a really wonderful experience there. So go Big Red. Love it. Love it. It was, was interesting about that school was she liked that it wasn't the gigantic public schools of 30,000, 40,000 kids like University of Minnesota we, we have here, but it wasn't the tiny school like you got Dartmouth, you know, it's like 2,500 or something. So it's kind of nice kind of tweener size of a school. So tell us about, hey, you're at, you're at Cornell. How did you, where'd your career go? How'd you end up getting interested in farmland? Absolutely. So growing up in the Hudson Valley, I grew up around farmland. It was literally in my backyard. Recreational farming, commercial farming uh, is really, all, was always around me. And so um, I, you know, worked on farms and uh, never planned to work in, in this industry. It's, uh, it was a little bit of a meandering path, but um, certainly is not a space that, uh, that I wasn't familiar with. I, I did go to Cornell, which is a big agricultural university. Uh, it is New York's land grant university. And uh, as part of that has a college of agriculture and life sciences. And my uh, major was housed in that college. So I studied atmospheric science. My lifelong interest and passion has always been weather. Uh, so I grew up obsessed with weather. I got to see 
thunderstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, blizzards, thunder snow, which is my personal favorite. Thunder snow. Um, <laughs> Um, all around me, and uh, and that's what led me to study meteorology. And then, you know, through my studies, I started to delve deeper into research around climate change, and climate became a much um, bigger focus of mine and an interest of mine as well. Uh, and so, when I was deciding what to do with my life and whether I was going to um, continue on in academia and pursue a higher degree or look at other industries, I really thought we have a lot of the information that we need around how our climate is changing, directionally at least. Um, and we are at a point as a society where it's time for various industries to respond. However, it makes sense, you know, obviously both economically, but, but also from an impact angle as well. And so when I was looking at industries that would be impacted by climate change, you know, there's the usual suspects, of course, energy is high on the list and even real estate is becoming a, a more um, increased focus. But agriculture was one that not many individuals were talking about, at least not 11 years ago when I went through this process. And I thought it was a really interesting one because it, in my mind, is still the only industry I can think of that has a circular relationship with climate. The way we farm, our farm management practices can contribute to climate change positively or negatively, depending on what we're doing to the land. And at the same time, the way the climate is changing, the way precipitation patterns are changing, the way temperature patterns are changing, that is all going to impact whether or not certain crops are suitable to grow in areas where they used to be suitable or where maybe new areas are becoming more suitable given some of these changes. So it, it is a, a loop, it is a feedback loop in two directions, where with every other industry I think of, it's one directional. Either that industry is impacting climate change or climate change is impacting that industry. So given that circular circularity uh, between agriculture and climate change and also the fact that it's an industry that not many folks were talking about 11 years ago, I would argue folks still aren't talking about it enough, it, it made perfect sense for me to go running in this direction. Mm. So you, how did you get started? You know, What did you do first to get into this, this area? My first uh, experience out of school was, you know, I thought it was important to build a really sound skill set uh, in financial analysis because ultimately I was interested in in the finance side of, uh, function, at least uh, within agribusiness and agriculture. Um, so I worked at Barclays Investment Bank, and that's where I was trained on both hard skills like being an Excel monkey to also soft skills uh, and understanding you know, how institutions operate, how financial institutions operate. And so I think that was a really important foundation for me. After several years there, I transitioned to a company called Grow Intelligence, which at the time was a seed stage startup focused on artificial intelligence in agriculture and basically gathering insights using predictive modeling across various data series in ag from crop yields to crop prices. And so I was early at Grow Intelligence. I started the business development team there. That company uh, is thriving today and, and Sarah Manker, who is the CEO and, and the leader I worked under, um, is uh, doing really, really amazing work as a pioneer in the space. So very proud to be an alumnus, alumni of Grow. After a bit of time there, I thought it made sense for me to pursue an MBA given that my undergrad was in a hard science and not uh, in business. I did not have formal business education. So I did apply to business schools and I ended up pursuing my MBA at Harvard. And I used my time there to really refine my leadership style and 
more of my strategic thinking on how I think about investing in agriculture broadly, whether that be at the top of the value chain at the farm gate level, so farmland real estate, but also thinking about how value creation happens further downstream, first value add processing, and then even all the way down to retail and consumer markets of agricultural products. So that's very MBA businessy talk. So let's let's translate that for, for everybody. So you mentioned the term value add for physicians like ourselves that are listening to, to this. What, what does that mean? Help translate that for us. Certainly. So I, I'll, I'll use a coffee farm as an example since I was on one a couple of days ago and at Juntos, uh, Puerto Rico. So at a coffee farm, you have coffee bushes. So coffee grows on a bush, not a tree, actually. So there's coffee bushes and they are on real asset, right? They obviously exist on land. And so the top of the value chain would be either investing in or owning that land and those long-lived assets, which are the bushes that produce those coffee berries on an annual basis. Those berries need to be treated you know, for various environmental factors. They, you need to ensure that they're getting enough water. Coffee is very susceptible to sunburn, so you need to ensure that they're getting enough shade. They, coffee berries flower at random time, so it's not like you can just go harvest one tree at a time, or I'm sorry, one bush at a time. You have to look at different segments of the bush and harvest when the berries are have flowered at a certain point and, and are um, ripe and red enough. So there's a lot that goes into making sure you are optimizing the highest quality product off of that living asset, in this case, a coffee bush. Once, assuming you do that all right and you harvest on time and you have a bunch of quality coffee berries, after that point, there's a whole bunch of work that still needs to be done before you can actually produce any coffee or sell a product that could go in and become coffee. You would need to wash the beans and basically peel the coffee berry out from its outer skin. After washing, you would need to dry and roast the coffee berry. And then after roasting, you would need to package and or grind if you're selling ground coffee. All of that can be done manually, but the unit economics would never work and you would be out of business before you started. So really you would need a, a machinery and PP&E or power plant and equipment to help automate that. So this is heavy machinery that automates the process of cleaning or taking the skin off of the coffee berry, of washing the coffee berry, of drying the coffee berry, of roasting the coffee berry. Even there's automated technology to sort between different size coffee berries because if, if you're not sorting for size, you're going to ro roast wrong and s the bigger ones are going to undercook and the small ones are going to overcook. So it's a very, very high capex or capital expenditure process that requires machinery to get to that stage. It's it's not something that, you know, if, if you just half an acre of coffee berries and, and you think you can throw a couple bucks at, you, you're going to be selling ground coffee to your friends, right? It, it takes a lot more equipment in order to automate that process. So that is the value stream that I just described from top to bottom, starting with the actual land and in this case, coffee bushes, all the way down to the package of eight or 12 ounce ground coffee that you would buy from a retailer. So in, you mentioned value add, what would be a value add in that example of the coffee farm? The value that's being added is all the work to getting the product 
to ready state for retail for an everyday consumer to enjoy. So an everyday consumer is not going to be, you know, dehusking their their coffee beans and washing and roasting their coffee beans and then grinding. It would take three or four hours, maybe longer, to make a cup of coffee. No one is going to do that. So the value add comes into in the all those intermediate steps where you are providing a service to to get the product from you know, its initial state, how it comes off the farm, to a state in which it can be enjoyed and used by consumers. So when you're talking about investing into farms, you're not just talking about the land necessarily. It's some of the property, plant, and equipment, perhaps that's being rented or needs to be added. Tell, tell me more about how this relates to what you do. So at Farm Together, we do focus on, on upstream. So we are focused on land. And different investment firms have different investment methodologies and and beliefs. Our belief is we think that there's um, our core competency and the most value opportunity would be at the farm gate level at the top of the value chain. And so our focus is on real assets. We are a real asset investment company. So we are not investing in factories or heavy property plant and equipment. We're investing in the very very best farms, the very best land, the very best uh, operating partners with the most domain expertise. So David, we're, you were just talking about the value chain and you guys focus at, at the, the farm gate level, I think was the term that you used. So tell me about in terms of looking at farmland, it's been an asset that's been in the news quite a bit with uh, Bill Gates and um, a lot of interest in this space. What's it, what's it been like? We've certainly seen a lot of interest in the space, particularly, I would say, with the experience of COVID and, and all of the resulting issues to global supply chains and particularly food supply chains. I think anecdotally, many folks may remember going to the grocery store and not seeing uh, familiar food or fruits or vegetables on the shelves during that time. And uh, that was certainly an eerie sight. I think it showed the fragility of our food system and and led some investors to realizing that agriculture is an incredibly important asset class. Uh, Aside from that, I I think also farmland has performed exceptionally well in periods of economic, I'd say turbulence, uh, both periods of high inflation, but also uh, in, in periods of recession. It tends to be a pretty defensive asset class, a a very resilient asset class. I think going back to 1991, the index that we track, which is called the NACREF Farmland Index, has posted a positive return for every single quarter, uh, save for one in that 30 plus year time span, which is rare. (laughs) You know, there are not many other asset classes that that can make that claim. Uh, And so I think investors have noted noticed this, and uh, it's brought a lot of fresh eyes and and uh, and new money into the space. I think part of it is also accessing farmland investment opportunities. Uh, it is a very fractional fractioned market. I would say it is not readily accessible. Um, it's a very private market. So when we look at U.S. farmland ownership, uh, roughly ninety eight percent is owned by individuals, uh, families, or private entities. So not large investment groups or or vehicles. And so, you know, for generations, these farms have sold either through families or through neighbors, uh, making it 
difficult for uh, for outside capital to participate, and you know I think that's a part of it as well. New uh, entrants into the space like Farm Together and what we're doing to make farmland more accessible that we have given more uh, accessibility to investors to have the ability to add farmland to their portfolio. And I think that that is uh, another reason for some of the recent uh, increases that we've seen in investment flows into farmland. I, I think there's a point where, you know, any asset class, stocks, commercial real estate, or agricultural land, right? There gets to be a point where it's valued so high, it's a bubble. Can you tell us a bit about farmland? Because you mentioned it's done so well. Could it be in a bubble? Have there been bubbles in the past in, in agricultural land? Tell us a little bit about that. I think any real asset or any asset class can go through through bubbles. I think that's just a, a normal cyclical process of, of many of these uh, alternatives. I would say in farmland today, there are certainly pockets that we as a firm think are less interesting because of where we're seeing valuations and, and cap rates and areas that are more interesting. But that's no different than any other point in time. There's constantly going to be either markets or geographies that we are bullish on or bearish on. You know, I think it does ultimately come down to any individual manager's thesis on what those areas are and why and what's driving valuation. You know, I think in, in our view right now, some of the row crop properties that we've seen, and again, just to uh, de-lingo, row crop is uh, a commodity that is planted annually. Um, so it's not a long-lived asset like the coffee bushes that we were talking about earlier. Uh, example of row crops would be corn, soy, wheat. They're planted annually. There's no long-lived asset there. We're seeing row crop ground, you know, sell at at really, very, really, really high levels, uh, record levels, in many parts of the Midwest. Some of those sales, you know, we we understand, um, given either very high quality of ground, and also just the fact of, uh, you know, obviously we've seen a, appreciation in Maryland value ranging from farmland to commercial real estate to all sorts of real assets. So there's certainly an explanation for some of the increase in, in land price that we've seen, but not all. So what, what, what does look interesting right now? You know, if the, some of those crops, and I know, I know it's true here in Minnesota, you know, that the prices of farmland have gone up so, so high. I'm not an expert like you are in it, but I, I do look at these things from time to time. What, where is their value right now in farmland? Well, I, I would never want to paint with too broad of a brush. So there, there are certainly row crop opportunities out there that could be priced fairly. So this, this isn't a categorical statement on all row crop property is overpriced. But that being said, that, that's a general trend we're seeing. General trends where we're seeing opportunity are in many of the specialty commodities or permanent commodities. And, and when I say specialty or permanent, again, now I'm going back to the coffee bush example, but um, so these are long-lived assets like trees and vines. Some examples of those would be wine grapes, almonds, apples, pistachios, pecans. These are markets where we see very strong fundamentals they're buttressed by limited supply, so you cannot grow many of these commodities everywhere. Many of the annual commodities like corn, soy, wheat, are you, you can grow those just about everywhere. 
you know, if there, there are different environmental considerations and agronomic considerations for some of these other commodities. And, you know, I think most importantly, it's the underlying economics. So when we look at row crops, the U.S. subsidizes upwards of 40 percent of, of farm income for row crops in the U.S. Um, so it's a heavily subsidized market. Margins are very, very thin, and it's really more a game of scale and, you know, and, and growing operations to cover as many thousands of acres as possible. Permanent commodities, completely different. Obviously, there's still unit economics, but it's a much bigger focus on uh, individual value creation and execution at a property level. Doing the best job farming a particular parcel. Doing the best job identifying what varieties of which commodities would be best given fundamentals and where there will be most consumer demand. Given the, all of that information, picking the best operating partner and the best marketing partner to ensure that there is a, you know, a, a distribution strategy in place to get the best price for all of the commodity that's grown on that particular farm. So it is a much more complex structure to manage, I would say, because there are more variables and there's, there's more opportunity to make mistakes, but also more opportunity to differentiate and to create value. Um, and so that's why we see that uh, that part of the market right now is very interesting because for firms like ours, where we do have in-house expertise and we do have a, a very deep knowledge of, of various markets, if you are able to identify the very best ingredients, the very best farms that are out there and that are most conducive to growing whichever commodity you're looking at, whether that be wine grapes or almonds, then it's just about getting the people on the ground to, you know, to execute, right? It, it becomes a, a people problem, not a, you know, not necessarily a, uh, a macro problem. And th those are factors that are much more in your control. Obviously, commodity prices are not in anyone's control, but, you know, doing the best to, to maximize land use and maximize uh, operations in a high margin business is something that comes down often more to to execution on a human capital level. So we are very excited about many of those markets, the ones I named, and that's where we're spending a lot of our time looking for opportunities. And now for a commercial break. Every year, about this time of the year, I have physicians asking me, Dave, I hate the taxes I'm paying. How can I lower my taxes? How can I understand what the heck is going on here? Well, that's why we have put together a tax cheat sheet that really has almost everything that you'd ever wanna know about taxes. Two page document, super simple. I put together a few videos to walk you through it. All you have to do to receive this awesome document is tax the word cheat sheet, all one word, C-H-E-A-T-S-H-E-E-T to 833-343-2986. If you want to get your copy of the 2023 tax cheat sheet, make sure to text the word, all one word, cheat sheet, C-H-E-A-T-S-H-E-E-T to 833-343-2986. Nothing better you can do for yourself than to get educated on taxes. And so my friends, make sure to download that cheat sheet again. You can text all one word cheat sheet to 833-343-2986. 
And now, back to the show. Well, I think there's, you know, you really think about all the different kinds of crops, right? There's more than corn and soybeans out there in terms of the different things people grow, farmlands, and certainly think about a place like California and how drought, at least for till this year, has been such a, a huge issue and uh, water and rights and all that kind of stuff that, that comes with it. I, I would love to know from you uh, in terms of one of the things that attracted me to, to the space, or at least has some interest in it, is this idea of, the, hey, I buy the land and then you have a tenant farmer that could lease it out from me. Kind of the operations that you mentioned before. And I've seen clients that, that do this and they just collect a check every year. It's the easiest thing that they've ever done. Um, it sounds like you guys are doing a lot more analytics. Are you more buy and hold? Are you more flippers? You know, tell, tell us more about what your objectives are, how you go about it in, in structuring a portfolio of different kinds of land. Certainly. I would say, um, first and foremost, we are not flippers. <laughs> I would say, uh, you know, uh, good, high quality farmland management requires, you know, uh, certainly first and foremost, a, a very deep expectation of stewardship and often longer hold periods because we're dealing with biological assets that require several years sometimes to develop. If you plant an almond tree, you won't see a commercial yield, you know, for several years, five, six um, years and there's nothing to speed up that process. So, you know, I, I would certainly say we're not flippers. I think from the client experience, even the more complex structures where we are directly operating as a, as a manager, meaning the client's investment return is driven from operating income as opposed to rental income, and they enjoy the upside of higher commodity prices and yields, but also bear the downside of lower commodity prices or yields. This is still a passive experience for our clients because we manage all of that as you know in our capacity as a manager for them. Leasing structures are are just as passive for clients, you know, in that capacity, like you were mentioning. We would lease the property to an operating partner and they would uh, they would pay a rent for that, and oftentimes uh, we structure those those deals where there's a base rent component and then a variable component, often like a profit or a revenue share, so that our client can enjoy in uh, some of the upside of the production of the farm while still you know ensuring at least a, a base level of return is expected from the rent uh, component of the agreement. But again, either lease deals or what we call directly operated deals where the cash yields operating income as opposed to rental income, from a client experience standpoint, it's equally as passive. You're you're working with farm together as your manager for these investments and you know we we do everything from handle all the invoices, uh, make all the distributions, uh, process all of the accounting returns, um, you know, share your, schedule K-1s, share performance analytics with you. It, it is a truly passive investment. Definitely, I, I can imagine that. How uh, how many of these kinds of funds or investments have you guys done? Give me, give me a scoop on that. Uh, at this time, I believe we've acquired just about, if not over 40 properties. And these range from deals as small as, I think our smallest was just over half a million dollars, 
to deals that I think may exceed $20 million. So it is a range, but typically we're looking to acquire properties that are, I would say between three and $8 million. That, that's where we're you know, uh, often um, targeting. There's a reason for that as well. We think that that's a, a segment of the market that is you know, often overlooked and underserved. Uh, larger institutional investors are often looking for those very, very large properties that may be it, you know, in excess of $20 million, $50 million, or even $100 million. And smaller individuals are often uh, competing for um, properties that are tinier, you know, in the one or even $2 million range. But where we, you know, where we tend to focus our uh, attention is sort of that middle segment where we don't see as much individual activity, we don't see larger institutional activity. So we think that that is a, a really interesting space to, to work in. And, uh, yeah, I think um, you know, for us, it's it's a competitive advantage because we're able to see a lot of deals that are off market and um, find a lot of interesting properties that way. So, at what point do you close a fund like this? Like, are you expecting, hey, hey, we raise, I don't know, a hundred million, and then we're going to shut this one? down and let it go full cycle at some point or because it sounds like you have some long-term stuff and then you have more things that are for cash tell us tell us about that so we have a few different products that we offer so i think that question would come down to which product we're considering we have our crowdfunding product uh, which was our first product and in crowdfunding, each property is a standalone entity. So there, there are uh, special purpose vehicles. Clients invest in just that one property. It's akin to to crowdfunding in real estate, you know, which has been uh, used now for, uh, I think, over a decade. So no different business model there. Single asset structure. Uh, we also have a fund product, which is the Farm Together Sustainable Farmland Fund, uh, and I think that is probably more of where you were coming from, Dave where you know it is a it is a fund product meaning we and an open-ended evergreen product meaning that we can continue to raise capital for it over the course of time and we continue to do so there is no hard cap there's no limit to when we would necessarily say okay we're you know we're not going to accept any further commitments into this into this um, product and i think for us you know when it comes to where we would sort of stop accepting commitments for the sustainable farmland fund. There's no hard line in the sand. I think, you know, ultimately we continue to see a lot of really wonderful and uh, compelling investment opportunities that the fund considers. And we just made a, an acquisition last month. We're in escrow for another acquisition this month. So we are very active. And, you know, as, as long as we continue to see compelling opportunities out there, I think you know, we'll continue to to accept new commitments for those opportunities. And then lastly, we have another product, which are tenant in common uh, deals or ticks. Again, this is a similar concept to real estate. Often you do see ticks in real estate and uh, a tenant in common is just uh, an interest in real property alongside other tenant, tenant in common investors. And so that could be a helpful product for investors who may be looking to uh, take advantage of a 1031 exchange and are looking to exchange proceeds from a sale of a real asset, but want the diversification of farmland or the other benefits of farmland, the resiliency of farmland in their portfolio. And so they're able to diversify their 1031, you know, out of just another commercial real estate investment or residential real estate investment and consider something a bit more different like a farmland real estate investment. 
So I guess what, what I'm curious about, David, that I, I didn't hear the answer to, so forgive me if I, I missed it somewhere in there. Like, when, when would people expect their money back? Like, let's take the crowdsourcing thing as an example. You know, like, is, are these the partners in this thing forever and they never get kind of their capital back? Or, you know, when's, when does that happen, you know, in, in these different kinds of investments? It all comes down to, again, you know, the product and the structure of the deal. So every crowdfunded deal has a, a stated duration. Um, often that's going to be a period of time of seven to 10 years. So we say up front, this is a seven year deal or this is a 10 year deal. And so, you know, by virtue of, of that, an investor participating in that deal would expect to receive their principal and, and you know, any uh, realized appreciation back at the end of that stated hold period. The farmland fund is uh, an open-ended vehicle. And so, you know, for, for that product, we're not targeting a specific liquidation point in time or anything like that. We target uh, producing a net cash yield of four to six percent each year and an overall return to the investor of eight to ten percent net. And the way we ac accomplish that is, uh, you know, obviously having asset sales over time to capture realized appreciation. But again, that that is much more fluid where we're not stating that we're going to sell the property in year six or year eight or year 10. We may sell in year four or year 12, depending on market conditions and what we think is, you know, is appropriate for the fund at that time. And then finally, you know, for the uh, tenant common structure, I'd say that that one is a, a bit more like crowdfunding where we, we have a, an intended duration or hold period in mind. And we work with our tech investors, you know, to, to see if that timeline is a good fit for them and their investment objectives. And, uh, you know, we would move forward if that was. So one of the, the big things always was something like this. The wonderful part is you're, you're not having to, as the investor, manage it directly. Someone's doing it on your behalf. But of course, there's a cost to that. So help us understand what uh, how your firm is getting paid and and because um, certainly that impacts the returns, right? You know, someone took the time and energy and effort, which a lot of busy doctors don't have, but if they did to, to try and figure it out on, on their own and they were able to do it successfully, you know, returns, of course, would be higher versus a firm like yourself that's taking the time off of someone's hands but is doing it for them. What, what kind of cost is involved with that? How does that work? Yeah, certainly. And, and just to clarify, all the return projections I've shared so far are net of fees and expenses. So we we always share our returns net of those fees. But um, just to share an idea or expectation of what those fees would be for an investor, typically with us, we charge a one-time fee at close. So that's like an, similar to an acquisition fee, an annual management fee, which is recurring, and a profit share or net operating income share. The one-time fee and the annual management fee can vary based on the complexity of the deal. So as we discussed earlier, some deals like the cash leases are very simple, easy to manage, um, and, and don't have a lot of required oversight or required attention, as much required attention as some other deals. So if we know a deal is going to be lighter, uh, a lighter workload on, on our end and won't require as much of our team's time, we are going to reflect that in lower fees to the investor. Um, similarly, if a deal is more complex, we're going to reflect that in higher fees, um, given that it will be an increased use of our team's time. I would say on average, our one-time fee uh, tends to be 2% of the deal size. 
Our annual management fee tends to be around one and a half percent of the deal size. The profit share is often dependent on meeting a certain hurdle, and that's hard to give a general idea on because hurdles are going to be very different based on deals and commodities and, and whatnot, but it's typically a small portion of any net operating income that exceeds a given hurdle. Interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's such an interesting world and, and so many different things people can invest in, even within farmland, whether whether you're, you're doing uh, the agriculture or you're doing livestock or whatever, right? I mean, there's such, such, such a diverse asset class even within itself. David, any closing thoughts you want to leave us with? I think closing thoughts, I would just say, you know, I, I think the next time you go to a grocery store and you're looking at fresh fruits or fresh vegetables, or you're picking up, you know, uh, maybe an alternative protein in the form of a nut butter or even um, a bag of almonds or pistachios, I think, you know, do a little bit of homework to think about the value chain that exists to get that product to you. And think about the, you know, going all the way upstream to the farm that's producing whatever that good is and to your experience as a consumer and what it would mean if that good weren't available to you and what it would mean potentially for, for a given market if that good uh, was not available. And I think, you know, we would never expect our clients to have any expertise in farmland investing. That That's what we're being hired and paid to do. But we do want our clients to understand what they're investing in and why they're investing in it. And I think, you know, not much needs to be done to gain an appreciation for the fragility, but also the resilience of our food system. It's one that it, it's incredible that it works as well as it does today, but any shift, any tectonic macro event, such as a pandemic can threaten its, you know, its current state. And so I think considering all that as a consumer and doing a little bit of homework on that could help an investor decide whether or not this is an, an industry or this is an asset class that they could see themselves adding to their portfolio. Love it. And if people are interested, where can they find you? Farmtogether.com. Awesome. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Dave. It was a pleasure. All right, my friends, well, that wraps up another episode today of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now, I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant, and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. 
Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of an issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.